Well, I hope you have your Bibles this morning. Let me invite you to turn to Psalm 137. Psalm 137. Most of the Psalms do not allow us to place it in a moment in history necessarily. But this particular Psalm allows us to do so. And let me kind of frame what's going on so you'll understand. I'm going to give you a quick history lesson. And by the way, <clears throat> I'll be giving a Final exam before we leave this morning, so listen carefully. Uh, if you know anything about the history of the world, you know that the Assyrians were in power. And around 722 B.C., they came in and they destroyed what we call the ten northern kingdoms of Israel. There were originally 12 kingdoms. The northern ones were the ten, the one, ten ones in the north. The two southern ones were called Judah, the ten northern ones were called Israel. And the Assyrians came in and just obliterated all ten of those tribes, took a lot of the people off to live in other places. And we never heard from them, generally speaking, again in history. We call them the ten lost tribes of Israel. That was in 722 B.C. The Assyrians were in power. Now, fast forward 150 years almost. By this time, the Babylonians are in power. And in 587, 586, the Babylonians came to the two remaining southern tribes, what we call Judah, and they overran Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, they tore down the walls of Jerusalem, they obliterated the city, and they took a good number of the outstanding citizens of that territory into exile. They took them into captivity, into Babylonia, and you know, you're very familiar with modern-day Babylonia because you've all heard of Iraq, haven't you? And where the Jewish people got taken from their homeland was to modern-day Iraq. And there they lived in exile, in captivity among a foreign people for almost 50 years until about 538 B.C. By this time now, we've got the third world power. Originally it was the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Now the Persians, King Cyrus, comes and he's very benevolent to the Jewish people and he allows them to return to their homeland. So this psalm was probably written either A, when the people were in captivity in Babylon, or B, shortly after Cyrus let them return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls, and the psalmist is remembering back to what happened in Babylon in that captivity. Okay? So that's going to allow you to kind of frame the psalm a little more clearly. So listen and follow along as I read it for you. By the waters or by the rivers of Babylon, that's a city in Babylonia in modern-day Iraq, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion or when we remembered Jerusalem. They're weeping, they're grieving, they're in pain because they remember watching the city burn and the temple being destroyed and the walls being torn down. They sat down and they wept when they remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, and this isn't a joyful statement they were making, they were making it with a lot of scorn and derision. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. 
How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. And then in verse 7, we see not grief and pain and sadness, but anger emerging. Remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us. And then in one of the verses of Scripture that if this were the only psalm that we would have, it wouldn't speak very favorably about our faith. Verse 9. He who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. The psalmist is so angry, he's willing to take newborn infants and small children and dash those Babylonians against the rocks and destroy them. But nevertheless, my friends, this is the word of the Lord. And together we say, thanks be to God. Well, we all know that wedding and work anniversaries and birthdays and other commemorations are meant to be happy milestones for us to celebrate and remember, right? We all like birthdays. We all like anniversaries of any kind. Last week, somebody told me that they had just celebrated 50 years of marriage and they were planning this big trip that they were going to enjoy together. Last Sunday morning, our own Jim Bearden told me that last Sunday was his birthday. He says, I'm 83 years old. I told Jim, I said, I want some of your DNA. Because Jim looks like he's like 63. And I said, one day, if I make it to 83, I want to be like you, Jim. Can you believe that two and a half years ago, we celebrated the 50th anniversary of Oakmont? Can you believe that this morning, this morning, we celebrate an anniversary? 13 years in this room to worship God. Today's 13 years. I, I was even thinking as, as the week end, ended, it sort of occurred to me that yesterday represents the 30th anniversary, 30 years that you've had to put up with me as your pastor. Bless your hearts. And September 1 began my 34th year in this congregation. Where does the time fly? And all of these birthdays and anniversaries and special commemorations that we have, we love to remember those, the good times, don't we? But the fact of the matter is, you can't forget the bad ones either. The bad anniversaries, the bad moments, the bad occasions in our lives. You always remember about that time of year when the loved one died. You remember the anniversary. You may remember that season in your life when you got sick for an extended period of time or you had to have surgery. And then we always remember those national or global tragedies 
And we always remember where we were when they happened. If you were living at the time, you know where you were probably and what you were doing when you heard that President Kennedy had been assassinated. If you were alive, you remember in 1974 where you were and what you were doing when you heard Richard Nixon announce to the nation that he was resigning as president. If you were alive and well, you remember where you were and what you were doing when the attempted assassination of President Reagan took place in the early 80s. If you were alive and well, you remember in 1986 where you were and what you were doing when the space shuttle Challenger exploded in midair. And if you were alive and well, you remember what you were doing and what was going on at the exact moment when you heard that the Twin Towers on 9-11 came down and then the Pentagon was hit and that plane crashed into the rural area in Pennsylvania. You remember. I mean, we, we, we remember and celebrate the good stuff, but we can't forget some of the bad stuff either, can we? You know, Someone has suggested that the psalmist perhaps is sitting, and in fact the psalmist does say, by the waters or rivers of Babylon we sat and wept. That maybe this psalmist is sitting with a group of other Jewish exiles in Babylon, in modern day Iraq, on a night of partying and celebrating in which the Babylonian captors are teasing and making fun and giving these Jewish exiles a hard time because their land has been destroyed, their city decimated, and they've been brought into exile and captivity. I, I want to kind of take that a few steps further for you and flesh it out. Can you imagine in your mind you're among the Jewish captors? And the Babylonians have gathered you all together by the river on a night of Saturday night of partying and reverie and they're singing their nationalistic songs and they're singing their hymns to their gods and their praise songs to their gods and a captor looks over at you, a Jewish exile. You're among that ragtag group of Jewish survivors. You've been forced to attend this nationalistic celebration of their victory over you and they're mocking you now with derisive words. Can you imagine what it's like to sit back and reflect how many years it's been since you've been deported and taken out of your homeland to live in another place thousands of miles away? How many years has it been that we've been together in a foreign land? Has it been 10 years? 20 years? Maybe we're almost at 50 years just before King Cyrus of Persia comes on the scene to let us go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And then can you imagine one of those captors, those Babylonian captors, saying derisively to each of us, sing us a song of Zion. We've been singing our nationalistic songs. How about you singing us a song of Zion? And remember that city that we destroyed 10, 20, 50 years ago. Can you even wrap your brain around that? Well, let me see if I can help you wrap your brain around it even better. Can you imagine a foreign force coming in and waging battle against us on our soul in the United States of America? Can you even wrap your mind around the fact that Greenville is a battlefield? and Raleigh is a battlefield, and Winston-Salem is a battlefield, and the West Coast is a battlefield, and the central part of our country, all 50 states is a battlefield, and the enemy has won. Can you wrap your brain around that for a minute? 
Can you wrap your mind around the fact that suddenly the United States is not free, but it's controlled by a foreign country, and Washington, D.C. lays in rubbles? Can, can, can you see the Capitol in ruins? The White House destroyed? The Supreme Court no longer standing? All of the governmental buildings in Washington, D.C., and the museums, and all of the other offices, Washington is just a mess and a string of concrete and steel and asphalt and smoke and fires. You got that in your brain? And now a good number of us, of the 300, almost 320 million Americans, have been rounded up and we've been taken thousands of miles away to live in a foreign land. You with me? And then suddenly, years into our captivity in another country, five years, 10 years, 20, 30, 40 years, one of our Russian or North Korean or Iranian captors brings all of us out for a Saturday night celebration of partying and reveling, a nationalistic celebration that remembers the time when they overran us in our country. And they say as we sit on a, in a Saturday night of forced partying with them by a river, they, they say to us, sing us one of your songs, one of your nationalistic songs of the United States of America. Sing us the Star Spangled Banner. Sing us America the Beautiful. Go ahead, sing us my country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty. And if we're a group of Christians that have, happen to be gathered together, they also egg us on a little bit more by saying, sing us some of your Christian songs. Sing us Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. Sing us, we have heard the joyful sound. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Or maybe what you all need to sing is, I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour, I need thee. You think you might be a little pain-filled, grief-stricken? demoralized, depressed, even angry? If you were living thousands of miles away and they said, sing to us your songs of America. And America's in ruins. Now maybe you can understand a little bit while, why the psalmist here voices the feelings of the people of the Babylonian exile. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Even possible. But you and I both know that it doesn't require physical, a physical form of exile or captivity for us to feel as if we are in some kind of foreign land, does it? If you don't believe that you can be in a foreign land other than just a physical location, go ask somebody who's in the middle of a separation or divorce. They'll tell you what it's like to be in a foreign land. 
trying to sing the Lord's song with a sense of joy. If you don't believe that you can be in some other location other than physical to be in a foreign land, go talk to somebody who's facing some form of illness or disease or someone who's facing an impending death. It may be their own death or the death of a loved one. They'll, talk, they'll, they'll tell you a little bit about what it's like to be in a foreign land. Not be able to sing the Lord's song. Go talk to someone who's living in the midst of a work crisis or an educational crisis or a financial crisis. They'll tell you a little bit what it's like to live in a foreign land and having trouble singing the Lord's song. And go talk to someone who's living in that foreign land of addiction. It may be alcohol, it may be prescription drugs, it may be illegal drugs, it may be a sexual addiction. Maybe an addiction to food, just to name a few. And they'll tell you a little bit about what it's like to live in a foreign land and how hard it is to sing the Lord's song when you're in that place. See, the fact is, you can be in any place of spiritual dryness. Sometimes that spiritual dryness is not of our own making. Many times it is of our own making. We need to acknowledge that this morning. But you can be in a place of physical dryness And you just don't feel God's presence. You don't feel like you can sing the Lord's song in a foreign land. And there's that grief. And there's that pain. And it often turns to depression. And not not in every case, but do you know what depression is lots of times? Depression is anger turned inward. Whenever I feel down and blue and a little depressed, you know what I like to ask myself? I like to ask myself the question, not at whom or at what do I feel angry but, or depressed, but at whom or what do I feel angry? Because sometimes we get boxed in in situations and we don't feel we can do anything about it and we turn that anger inward and it becomes depression. Here the psalmist has moved from pain and grief and depression to anger. Because they've lost Jerusalem forever. See, Jerusalem was was the place they always identified with the presence of God and with worshiping Him. And now they feel that they've lost God and their faith forever. And in one of the most difficult passages of Scripture, we see that grief and that sadness and that pain moving to depression and ultimately moving to anger. Because in verse 7... The psalmist says, God, I hope you'll get back at those Edomites who teamed up with the Babylonians to destroy our city. God, I hope you'll wipe them off the face of the planet. Now, these are my words, not the psalmist. A little poetic license here. And then verses 8 and 9, the poet has a wish that thankfully he leads to God and does not try to act on his own. The wish is revenge on the Babylonians for what they've done with the destruction of their homeland of Jerusalem and a wish that if they could get a hold of every Babylonian infant and every Babylonian small child, they would take that child and physically pick him or her up and dash them. Can you, you got that picture in your mind of dashing? Can you imagine picking up an infant? You're so angry. 
that you would wish someone who had done you harm to take his or her child and pick up that small child and dash them against the rocks. See, we have violence in our scriptures too that we sometimes forget is there. Now, you know, I've thought about this scripture a lot this week. And I don't know why, but towards the end of the week, what kicked in for me is that I can really understand how people's pain and grief and sadness and depression turns to this rage. It turns to this anger. And we're seeing it happen in our country when it comes to some of the deepening racial divide that's occurring. We've seen it revolve and circle around our country. And even within the last couple of weeks, it's landed right here in North Carolina in the city of Charlotte. Lord knows what their governmental leaders and their faith leaders are dealing with. And you know, we, we've got two sides, and most stories have at least two and may, sometimes multiple sides. On one side, you've got our law enforcement. You've got our police who are being called on to do a job that nobody else wants to do. Not only are they being called to enforce the laws of our land, but on many occasions they're being called on to be mental health counselors and social workers and addiction specialists and marriage and family therapists. Every time they make a house call and every time they make a traffic stop, they don't know what they're going to be dealing with. It's a tough job. It's a tough job. And then we have the African-American community who in ways that those of us who are white cannot fully appreciate or understand are still dealing with the pain of those seasons in their life when they had relatives who were in slavery. They had relatives who could not vote. They had relatives or they experienced for themselves not being able to drink out of the same water fountain, to go to the same bathroom, to go to the same school. It's white kids and white people. And there's that pain, and, and now they are being forced to tutor and talk with their children about how to handle interactions with police in ways that it never even occurred to me to talk to my two children about when they got their driver's license or old enough to be out on their own. So those are the two sides. And the fact is, it's a mess. On both sides of the coin, and our faith should be able to speak to the mess. God, God specializes in bringing healing to messes. I'm a prime example, and most of you are too. Your life has been a mess at some point, or it may be now, and God brings healing to messes. And the fact is, in this racial divide, both sides are struggling on knowing how to sing the Lord's song in a foreign land. Because truth be told, both sides have equally lost something or they long for something that they've never had. And now that grief is moving from, expressed, from pain and sadness and grief to an expressed anger. And what I've learned through the years is that, you know, you don't have to agree with something. You don't have to agree with a behavior or action in order to understand the why behind the actions. And the why 
comes, I think, from a lot of anger. And it's just not that situation. There are people who carry lots of bitterness and rage and anger in their life. Let me tell you what I think the psalmist does. I think the psalmist legitimizes that it's okay for you and me to feel angry and to tell God about it. Even to say, God, I'm so angry that I feel like dashing little small children against the rocks. That's what the psalmist did. And it's in the Psalter. It's one of the 150 psalms that's in our Bible. God can handle our anger and we can tell him what we feel for his safekeeping. And I think those of us who say we're followers after Jesus, those of us who are followers after Jesus need to learn those times in life when, when we don't feel like we have to jump in and fix something. We just need to create some space for people to feel what they feel. If it's depression or grief or sadness or anger, to give them that space and to remind them that they're loved. And that's what we do in times of death. People, it's not unusual at all in a moment of death to see someone who is very angry. They're angry at God. They're angry at the church. They're angry at the doctor. They're angry at the hospital. They're angry at the one who died. They're angry at another family member. And instead of trying to fix people, sometimes we just need to let them be and to feel what they feel and to remind them God loves you in your pain. And in your anger. And when we come alongside someone who can't sing the Lord's song in a foreign land, that person can't muster the voice, hear the tune, or play the notes for themselves while they're in their foreign lands of addiction or separation and divorce or illness or death or whatever it is, we need to mosey up beside people more often and put our arms around them and sing the Lord's song for them. And my guess is, People have done that for you in your life. There was a time in your life when you probably couldn't sing the Lord's song. You were living in a foreign land. You couldn't muster the voice, hear the tune, play the notes, and people joined hands and hearts and gathered in a circle of love around you, and they sung the Lord's song, and they prayed the Lord's prayer, and they voiced what you couldn't find the words to voice. They were there for you. That's what people who follow Jesus do. We come alongside of people even that we disagree with them. And we put our arms around them and we remind them that they are people of love for whom Jesus died. And my guess is when somebody came up and put their arm around you and reminded you that you are a person for whom Jesus died, that it helped you survive another day. And that's what our nation needs, that's what our world needs, that's what our church needs, that's what you and I need. We need to start having our radar screens up and running for those lost souls who are living in a foreign land and they need us to come and help them make it one more day. They can't sing the Lord's song or pray the Lord's prayer. But you can't. And I can too.